Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Curick, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. all for joining us for today's Thriller Panel event. Megan Collins is the author of Thicker Than Water, The Family Plot, Behind the Red Door, and The Winter Sister. She received her BA in English and Creative Writing from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, and she holds an MFA in Creative Writing from Boston University, where she was a teaching fellow. She has taught Creative Writing at the Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts and Central Connecticut State University. She is the managing editor of Three Elements Review. A Pushcart Prize and two-time Best of the Net nominee, her work has appeared in many print and online journals, including Compose, Line Break, Off the Coast, Spillway, Tinderbox Poetry Journal, and Rattle. She lives in Connecticut, and her featured novel today is Thicker Than Water. Rhea Frey is the multi-published, award-winning, bestseller author of Not Her Daughter, Because You're Mine, and Until I Find You, as well as four nonfiction books. She's been featured in US Weekly, Entertainment Weekly, Glamour, Pop Sugar, Hello Sunshine, Marie Claire, Prayed, Shape, Hello Giggles, Crime Reads, Writer's Digest, WGN, and Fox News. Today in Nashville, Talk of the Town, and more. She's also the CEO and founder of Right Way, where aspiring writers become published authors. Her weekly Right Way podcast takes a deep dive into the publishing industry and empowers writers to make informed decisions about their careers, and her featured novel today is The Other Year. Vanessa Lilly is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and the author of the best-selling suspense novels, Little Voices and For the Best. With 15 years of marketing and communications experience, Vanessa hosts a weekly Instagram Live event with crime fiction authors and was a columnist for the Providence Journal. She lives on Narragansett land in Rhode Island and her featured book today is Blood Sisters. Kathy Reich's first novel, Deja Dead, published in 1997, won the Ellis Award for Best First Novel and was an international bestseller. The Bone Hacker is Reich's 22nd novel featuring forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan. Reich's was also a producer of Fox Television's longest-running scripted drama, Bones, which was based on her work and her novels. One of very few forensic anthropologists certified by the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, Kathy divides her time between Charlotte, North Carolina and Charleston, South Carolina, and her featured novel today is The Bone Hacker. Peter Swanson is the New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including The Kind Worth Killing, which was the winner of the New England Society Book Award and finalist for the CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. Her Every Fear, an NPR Book of the Year, and his most recent, The Kind Worth Killing. His books have been translated into over 30 languages, and his stories, poetry, and features have appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, The Atlantic Monthly, Measure, The Guardian, The Strand Magazine, and Yankee Magazine. A graduate of Trinity College, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and Emerson College, he lives on the North Shore of Massachusetts with his wife and cat, and his featured novel today is The Kind Worth Saving. And last but not least, 
of our panelists, we have Wendy Walker. Um, Wendy is the author of psychological suspense novels, All Is Not Forgotten, Emma Is the Night, The Night Before, Don't Look For Me, and The Soon Coming, American Girl. Her novels have been translated into 23 foreign languages, topped bestseller lists both nationally and abroad, and have been options for television and film. Wendy holds degrees from Brown University and Georgetown Law School. She's a former family law attorney with training in child advocacy and has worked in finance and several areas of the law. And her future novel today is What Remains. All of our wonderful panelists will be in discussion today with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. And Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an indie next pick by the American Booksellers Association. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021. And Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband, Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. And without any further ado, please join me in welcoming our esteemed thriller panelists and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Thank you, Lindsay. That was, um, that was a novel in and of itself. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for coming. We have done this, I think, three years in a row, and uh, it just gets better and better. We have a couple return panelists, three return panelists, three new panelists, and I have had fun. I've gotten to read everybody's book except Vanessa's so far, uh, which was a real thrill. And I think I'm just going to start in the most general way and ask you each to go down the line, starting in whatever direction you want, and you know, give your elevator pitch for the novel sitting in front of you. So what remains is the story of Cold case detective Elise Sutton who takes one man's life to save another setting off a terrifying game of cat and mouse with the man whose life she saved uh, so it has a lot of layers there's a dual uh, timeline um, and sort of a separate point of view that um, that adds to the mystery but it's really Elise's story as she comes face to face with this man who is terrorizing her and her family because of the trauma that both of them shared um, in this, um, this incident where she saved his life. Um, so it's gritty, it's a little bit dark, it's fast paced, and there's a lot of psychology about trauma and trauma recovery. Okay, um, Thicker Than Water is about two um, sisters-in-law who are also best friends and believe that they have an unbreakable bond, that nothing can separate them. Um, until one night, they're having a movie night, and they get a call that um, the man who connects them, so the husband of one and the brother of the other, has gotten to a car accident and is now in a medically induced coma. And like, that's bad enough. But then the next day, the police show up, and they inform them that uh, due to the car accident, they found a lot of evidence in this man's car that connects him to um, the recent murder of his boss. And so now he is the prime suspect. And so these two sisters-in-law are like, obviously he could not have done this. He doesn't even like care about his boss enough to kill him or whatever. <laughs> um, and so they, they set out there saying, well, we're gonna figure this out, clear his name. 
um, because we don't want him to wake up from this coma and get arrested. So they start looking into things, and um, the more secrets they uncover and truths that come out, the more they start to diverge in what they think, and with one of them more sure than ever that this man is innocent, and the other starting to believe he might have actually done it. And now that is this rift for the very first time in these women's relationship. Hello, everyone. Um, spoiler alert, this is not a thriller, so I don't know how I, I managed to make my way onto this panel. Um, I do write suspense and thriller, but this is a little bit different, so I'm going to be the one that is not like the others. But um, this book is uh, about a woman named Kate Baker. We are following her in a year of her life. She's navigating her relationship. She's raising a nine-year-old daughter. She's an agricultural engineer, and is really just kind of trying to balance everything. Um, when the book starts, she is taking her daughter to the beach. They go to the beach every year. There's a red flag. Her daughter darts into the water and disappears beneath the waves. So this is where the book gets interesting and actually splits into two parallel journeys. So you're really getting two books in one. There's two chapter ones, two chapter twos, two chapter threes, all the way through. So if you haven't gotten a book yet with your voucher, you get two books in one. Might <laughs> <laughs> be, be worth it. Um, but in, in one storyline, in one year, her daughter, Kate's daughter, pops right back up to the surface of the ocean. Life carries on as usual. In the other year, her daughter does not pop back up. And Kate really must deal with that grief of losing her child. So I really wanted to see if you kind of end up in the place that you're supposed to, no matter what, or if tragedy sends us on a different journey entirely. So it's a comedy. <laughs> I'm Vanessa Lilly. Um, my book is called Blood Sisters. And um, this is my third book, but it, um, it's very much the book of my heart. It's about a, a woman from northeastern Oklahoma who's Cherokee which is just like me. I'm Cherokee from Northeastern Oklahoma. And um, she uh, is an archeologist, not like me. I couldn't even pass basic science, but that's the fun of being a fiction writer, um, for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And she's out here in Rhode Island, actually, out on kind of Narragansett land. And um, she gets a call that back in rural Oklahoma, remains have been found that actually had an old ID badge of hers. And so she's called back to her hometown, which is not a place she wanted to go. And while she's there investigating, um, her sister goes missing. And so the heart of this book is um, sort of a returning home, but it's also the story of sisterhood, and very particularly the crisis in many countries of missing and murdered indigenous women, and how we just need to be talking about it. So um, this is uh, Sid Walker is my main character. And it's the first book in the series that um, I will certainly be continuing. The next one's actually going to be set almost all in Rhode Island on Narragansett land. But this very much is a book of my heart. I loved writing about Oklahoma. There was a lot of oaky in it. So get ready. But um, I do have a ton of fun swag. I have a sticker problem. So even if you don't pre-order, come see me, you're going to get a sticker. But I also have these really cool beaded bookmarks that I worked with Cherokee graphic artist and Cherokee beater to make um, just like a gift and some other little things. Hi. Um, so Kind Worth Saving is the first um, sequel I've written, although I'm calling it a semi-sequel because you don't really need to have read The Kind Worth Killing um, to, to read Kind Worth Saving. Um, but ever since Kind Worth Killing, which was my second novel, I've had two characters in that book. Um, one was my, um, a detective, Henry Kimball, that I wanted to get back to, and, but most particularly Lily Kintner, who um, was I've kind of forced her way to become the protagonist of the kind worth killing. She's, um, she's a murderer, 
Um, I'm not giving anything away because she kills someone in the second chapter of Kind Worth Killing. She's only 14 at the time. Um, but, but so I always wanted to get back to her. So um, my books are premise books always, and the premise of this book, um, before I knew that Lily and um, Henry could get involved in it, was um, it starts at a resort hotel, this sort of old, musty resort hotel, where um, there are two teenagers there who go to the same school, but they're not friends. One's a very popular girl, sort of 14 years old, um, and then the boy is this kind of shy, bookish boy. But because they're stuck at this horrible hotel for two weeks, they form a friendship, and that friendship turns very sinister. Um, and and I, knew, I knew I wanted to write a book about these characters, and then at one point I was like, oh, I figured out a way to get Lily and Henry into this book. The Bone Hacker. This is the 22nd in the Temperance Brennan series. It opens with Tempe and her main squeeze, Ryan, in a little boat in the St. Lawrence River watching the fireworks. Uh, Montreal has an international fireworks festival, and a storm blows up. There's a man up on the Jacques Cartier Bridge, gets struck by lightning, falls into the river. So, of course, our heroine is asked to help retrieve him and identify him. She finds upon him a tattoo. She runs that through the FBI tattoo database, and it li links to a gang in the Turks and Caicos Islands. Has anyone been there? They're fantastic, down in the Caribbean. So she calls down. The detective from there insists on coming to Montreal, even though Tempe says, you don't have to do that. We'll just ship this guy home to you. Detective has ulterior motives. She wants to talk Tempe into going to the Turks and Caicos Islands because they have a series of disappearances and at least one murder of a young male tourist. And turns out there's a serial killer down there, and he hacks off the left hand of each of his victims. While she's down there, the FBI becomes involved, and it turns out that there is cybercrime going on. Someone is, has figured out a software or written a software to hack into security systems, to hack into people's phones. See what I'm doing there with the hackers, the bone hacker, the hacking off the hands, and then the, the, the hacking into to your phones. It was inspired by reading a New York Times article um, on uh, a very powerful spyware called uh, Pegasus, an NSO. And it's a spy, it's no-click spyware. It can be downloaded into anybody's phone without you clicking on anything. You don't even know it's there. And it can be used to spy on individuals individuals on citizens. The US was considering buying it, decided not to. But I thought, well, that's a really scary idea. We all walk around with our devices glued to us. So that's all I'm going to tell you about this book. <laughs> Thank you all. So I, I have individual questions for each of you. So I'm going to start with Ria. So I really love that kind of, you know, sliding doors, parallel reality, uh, a timeline that plays out one way, it plays out another way. And was that your way into this book? Was that what you decided before you even began you wanted to write? Or I think I read you talk about having this flash of a thought, you are a mother of a daughter. Uh, what was your way in and how did you get to that? 
Well, I love the movie Sliding Doors. If anyone has ever seen it, that movie really stuck in my head because I had not seen a movie like that. And I'm so interested in time and the whole what if question. Like, what if I hadn't gone to this college, met this person, become a mother? You know, what would my life look like? I think we've all asked ourselves that question. But a few years ago, I do have an 11 year old, 11 and a half year old daughter now, and she was nine. We take her to the beach every year, and there was a red flag. She went into the water, she did disappear beneath the waves. And it was one of those books that just came to me in a single moment. And I wanted to see if I could, I don't know, make this whole dual timeline thing work. And if I could tell essentially two stories in one. I loved the Choose Your Own Adventure books as kids. I don't know if anybody remembers those. Um, so I kind of wanted this to feel like that. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole idea um, with the structure came to me in that moment when my daughter mm -hmm. went beneath that wave. Thank you. And um, I want to go to you, Wendy. So your book also begins with a pivotal moment, a different kind of pivotal moment. And was that your, your way into... So Elise, she makes a decision that she is morally very complicated about afterwards. And that ambiguity is really at the core of the psychological fiction. So will you talk about that a little? Yeah, so um, this book came to me in a moment um, as well. I was driving around a few years ago and listening to the news and there were... Um, there was a shooting in Boulder, Colorado at a grocery store, and the first um, people to be interviewed were bystanders, which is sort of unusual because usually they're first responders or you know, some, somebody official giving a report, but they weren't available, so they were grabbing people as they were running out of the store and trying to get accounts of it. And their voices, the, the, the trauma that I heard in their voices was so compelling. And then their stories disappeared from the news cycle because they weren't physically injured, they didn't lose anyone in the store, and I started to wonder what happens to them. Um, and not just, not just to them, but what happens to a person who is not you know, necessarily suffering from childhood trauma or ongoing trauma, but a sudden trauma. We all walk through life knowing these things can happen. Lightning can strike, there can be a flood, there can be a shooting. But we don't dwell on it. We don't, if we did, we wouldn't get out of bed, right? We just, it's, but it's in the back of our minds. And I started doing research into trauma, which most of my books um, are trauma related, I think because of my training as a family law attorney. <laughs> Anyone who's been through divorce knows what I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, it's a very traumatic um, uh, time in people's lives. So that's, that's what interests me most when I'm writing. And what I found in doing this research um, is that for people who are um, in, in that kind of acute uh, traumatic situation, um, they can feel a disconnect with the rest of the world because they are in an, like a fight or flight state for a long time until they process it, even though they weren't injured. And the people around them expect them to be uh, happier, like, oh, thank gosh, nothing happened to me, and to, everything's brighter and better, and, the, and it seems, you know, just, just like more glorious life, and they treasure it more, but in reality, they're walking around in a state of, of constant fear. So I, with Elise, I, I took that one step further, and I said, what if it was someone who wasn't just traumatized by being there, but who was actively involved, and then had to suffer through the doubt of whether she had to take this life, to save others, um, so she would have guilt, she would have doubt, 
plus trauma and alienation. And so it's really her, um, that she's in that state throughout the entire book, um, and which takes place in a couple of weeks. So that was my interest. Thank you. And I'm gonna uh, jump off of the trauma uh, launch pad. Anyone who's seen me or heard me speak, my latest book deals with generational trauma, and I'm very interested in epigenetics, this idea that we do carry scars from earlier family members. We carry scars in our larger culture. So I'm going to bring it to you, Vanessa. You are talking about... So Sid Walker is um, an archaeologist for the Bureau of Indian Affairs here in Rhode Island, you are bringing in the, you mentioned there are women being murdered, uh, mainly in the West, I believe, from but, my understanding. Uh, right, at the, yes, uh, but, yeah, but all over, but for sure in the West, there's a lot of factors out there, that larger reservations, where there are pipelines, there are like man camps, there's, there's some factors out there that maybe make it more prominent. But the system itself, because reservation land is not managed by your local police, that is managed by the FBI who don't give two craps about women or girls who have gone missing, especially if they have a record. Or maybe they have a drug problem. And so within these even smaller communities, you have girls go missing, and maybe their family reports them, maybe they don't. Maybe they have someone who loves them and will, maybe they don't. And so that's why it sort of is an epidemic and a crisis, because it's so underreported. But talk a little bit about, is there a generational trauma component? Oh, I mean, and I deeply yeah. believe that it is carried through our DNA, as you were saying. I mean, I think for my family, we are in northeastern Oklahoma because of the Trail of Tears. We used to be out in the Nashville um, area. And, you know, I think generally we're kind of familiar with what that means. And it was not only Cherokee who had a Trail of Tears. Men, most tribes did. But the idea is that you had a homeland, and it's a place that you lived for thousands and thousands of years. And then suddenly, so you leave behind your homes and your businesses, the medicines that you've been using to survive, the animals you have been using to survive, your ways of life that were passed down, and you're taken to a place that you do not know. And that thousand mile journey, maybe your parents make it, maybe they don't, but you have to keep walking because there are soldiers with guns telling you to. I mean, that will live in your DNA. And that's passed along. And then when you're taken to a place that doesn't support you socially, in fact, kind of wants to erase you, that is passed on as well. So it absolutely lives in our DNA. And, and, and when you haven't been supported for generations, you know, that's where so many of these systemic problems occur. And thank God there are more stories about it. I feel like we are talking about it. Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out in a couple weeks. Everybody should go see it. It's about the Osage tribe and some early murders and the birth of the FBI. Martin Scorsese is a powerful film, right? We're talking about it because this is our history. This is the history of our country. This is why we are all here, is we had to oppress a people who were here. And we got to talk about it. And if we don't, then it's a sickness, I think, within us. And where it gets weirdly personally connected, I've been learning about my family. My dad was from a place called Dixon, Tennessee. And I found out I'm descended of the early settlers of Middle Tennessee and his family. They were given land grants by the state of North Carolina for that part of Middle Tennessee. So who knows what that story is and who knows, you know, what we carry. But to bring it now <laughs> to the next thing, I, I want to ask you, Kathy, the 
uh, preparing you by saying your name right when you're drinking water. Uh, writing a series is an extraordinary, extraordinary accomplishment. And I think everyone would like to hear, how did you start doing that? I, did you know you were going to write Tempe Brennan for all these books, two, two dozen books? Did you think you were just writing one? Did you just, how, how did you approach it from the beginning? Um, a couple of things came together back in 1990-something. Um, I made full professor at the university, so I was free to do whatever I wanted. And I had just finished working on a serial murder case. Um, I did all the forensic anthropology for the province of Quebec for decades. So I had a story idea, just the nugget of the case. I change all the names and the dates and, and all the details to protect, well, for ethical and legal reasons. So I had the freedom to do something new and a story idea. I also had three kids approaching college age and talking about places like Oberlin and Duke and Wake Forest. And I don't know if you know this, but university faculty are not overly well paid. So I thought, well, what can I do to make a little extra money on the side? I had a colleague who was writing um, Western romances, yeah, <laughs> directly to paperback. So I read one, and I thought, I'll be kind. I thought, I can do this. <laughs> so that all came together, and uh, that was the basis for Deja Dead. So the early, I would say the first five books in the series are based on actual cases that I worked on. As I moved along in the series, I sometimes would do that, but or experiences I had. One of the books I had just gone to Afghanistan on a USO, you know, to thank our troops. So the book set in Afghanistan. So sometimes I would do that, a, a case, sometimes an experience. Sometimes it was what we would call in the Bones writer's room, ripped from the headlines. And this one was a ripped from the headlines, as I mentioned earlier, reading that article in the New York Times about this uh, powerful spyware that could be used to spy on individual citizens. Did I just really meander way off your question? Well, the one thing uh, I would, I'd like to just add a tag question to you. Did you think that this character would go on and on? I just hoped that somebody would like the book enough to publish it. I set totally unknown debut author, never wrote fiction. I set a 50 submission limit in my mind. If I sent it to 50 publishers and they didn't like it, I would take that as a commentary on my writing skills and go back to my day job. So I just hoped someone would like it enough to publish it and then people would read it enough to like it and um, yeah, I mean, that's how I, I got into it. And as it turned out, the first publisher to whom I sent it bought it, Scribner. And I'm still with that publisher today. Wow. All right, Peter. You have written a sequel, uh, The Kind Worth Saving, which we have here is a sequel. This is or Saving or Killing. Saving is the Saving is a sequel, that's what I read. And you don't have to have read the first. Uh, did you know you were going to continue this character? So my first two um, novels and, and my two book deal were, were standalones. 
And um, I remember talking to my editor, and um, he kind of said, you know, keep keep doing um, standalones if you want. And then he said to me, you know, if this were three years ago, I'd have kind of insisted that you create a, a character, a detective character, and do a series. But Gone Girl had just come out. Um, and Gone Girl kind of changed everything. Um, suddenly people wanted these standalone stories. Um, they didn't necessarily have to focus on detectives to be, um, you know, suspense fiction. They could be um, about, you know, ordinary people killing one another or just about villains in general. Um, so so I've, I love writing standalones. Um, one of the things I like about it is anything is game. Um, so you, you might introduce someone who looks like a hero early on and you can bump them off halfway through. Um, your, your, your level, you can get to a level of surprise that you can't necessarily get to um, with a series. I mean, there's, there can obviously be lots of surprises in your books, but one of them is not gonna be the death of your main character, maybe. We don't know, <laughs> we don't know. Not yet, anyway. But no one would be happy if that happened, let's put it that way. Um, so yeah, so I think, um, so I love doing that. And the other thing I always think about with standalones is, um, it's a little trick I tell myself, which is you're, the characters you're writing about, the, what's happening to them in this book is the most significant moment of their lives. That's what we're reading. Um, so I like that. You can really throw, throw stuff at your characters. Um, but that being said, I had fallen in love with this character, Lily Kintner. Um, and kind of wanted to get her back into a story, um, and eventually did. Um, and she's going to be in my next one as well. Um, but then I think after that, I'm going to go back to standalone. Thank it? you. Thank you. <laughs> it might happen. Anything is possible. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Megan, um, where are, there you are, right at the top. Okay, Julia and Sienna Larkin. Uh, you create two very distinctive characters who have this symbiotic relationship linked through the brother in the coma, but it's, their relationship is really separate from the brother, but because of the brother, and talk to us a bit about how you created each of the, those such distinct voices that start to diverge. Um, so I talk a lot about how um, these two characters, Julia and Sienna, are really like two competing sides of myself that seem like they should not belong in the same person, but they do, because I exist. Um, so Julia is someone who is non-confrontational to a fault. She will silence herself instead of speaking her truth and saying what she needs to say um, because she's scared that it could cause problems in relationships, that there could be unintended um, hurt feelings or whatever. Um, and so Sienna, on the other hand, is someone who is not at all afraid to speak her mind. Um, and so she often speaks for Julia in a lot of cases. They're business partners as well as best friends. So. Sienna will take on sort of the more aggressive clients. Um, and Sienna also has this, um, something that I have that I call my injustice button, where when something is really unfair, it gets triggered and I, it's like all I can think about 
And so she speaks out about injustice a lot. She gets really riled up about it, um, which is partly why when her brother is accused of murder, like, and she's like, no, my brother is the most perfect human being on earth, uh, that really triggers her to be like, we're gonna solve this. But um, so because I have both of those things, both the part of myself that is kind of non-confrontational and the part of myself that gets really riled up by injustices, um, and is like, I have a voice, I'm going to use my voice. Um, the characters were sort of the easiest that I've ever created in terms of finding the voice and um, just figuring out who they are. Um, and they're not, they're not me, but I took those qualities from myself and so I could kind of figure out, okay, well, what are, what are her gestures like usually because of that? What are, what is, how do they interact together and what are those moments like? Because while Sienna speaks for Julia a lot, Julia is often the one who pulls Sienna back when she's getting a little too riled up and could be causing some problems. Um, and so it has this dual point of view throughout the book where in Julia's head and then Sienna's. And um, that was really helpful to me because one of my goals in creating this book was that when you are in Julia's thoughts, you are on Julia's side about what she thinks happened, um, whether this man really is a murderer or not. And when you're in Sienna's side or head, you would think, okay, I think Sienna's correct. So you're kind of flip-flopping throughout the book. I hope you would have to read it and let me know if that's the case. Um, and so because I felt so connected to these characters, um, I feel like that was easier for me to do um, to just kind of get into those spaces. Okay, thank you. And Wendy, now that we're on alternating points of view, I'm gonna bring it back to you. So uh, you write from Elise's point of view, and then you also write from another viewpoint, and it's one we don't really recognize, and that voice is commenting on a, a, a murder at a remote cabin or a murder site specifically. So how did that evolve in what remains? Was that your intention from the get-go or did it develop at some point? Yeah, so I started um, uh, the book with this intention of having this really cool plot twist. And, um, and it's a very traditional kind of psychological thriller, gone girl type twist. And I needed to do two points of view um, for it to work. And as I, I, I did one draft and I sent it to my agent who was like, I love, I love this book so much, I love it, but why are there like three bodies and not two? And I'm like, because of the twist? And she was like, oh yeah, I didn't get it. So I, I thought, okay. I like there, and I just, I kept struggling with it. So I, um, I, I made some adjustments. I really started, and this happens, right, as writers. We, you know, you'll have these great intentions for something, and then you try to execute it. It doesn't quite work, and you pivot. So, but I loved this point of view so much. It's called the Kill Room chapters. And so you're with Elise in this, um, you know, she's trying to find this man whose life she saved, who has disappeared. And so she and her partner, Rowan, they're trying to find him so she can get an answer to the question about whether um, she really needed to uh, take out the shooter if he was still in the line of fire, and also because he's now a witness who's missing. Um, and, and her family, her husband and her children and everything she's going through, and it's all in her, vo in her head, first person, present tense. It's very intense as a result. And so the alternate 
point of view gives, gives a little beat. So it's every few chapters you go to the kill room. And this is at a hunting cabin in the woods near this town. You don't know who's narrating it. You, you don't really know even what jurisdiction it is, but they have found, there's a cremation oven in this shelter that hunters use. Um, it's usually used for animals, for the remains of animals um, to cremate, but they find human remains. These two hunters rake it out and they find human remains. And I won't go into all the gory details about cremation ovens and why there were bones still in there, but that was actually a whole other thing. My Google searches were like out of control. It was, but, um, but it was very, it was great to be able to take a breath from, okay, Elise is in the trauma. She's, this man is tormenting her. He's stalking her. And it was nice to be able to go to this other point of view. And the other thing I was able to do is, because Elise is, um, she was a forensic science uh, professor before she was a detective, um, and all of her classes were online, and she's been updating the portal with her current cases. And this man who is stalking her has gained access to the classes. So he knows everything that she knows. And so in a sense, she starts playing this, this cat and mouse game, which is terrorizing her and her family. She's almost playing against herself because he knows everything she does. But then when you're in the kill room chapters, you start seeing these little pieces of evidence that are in the primary narration. So you know these two stories are connected. So part of the fun, I think, of the book is trying to figure it out and they sort of tie together in the end. And I eventually was able to make the twist work. So it was, it was, it served a lot of purposes for the plot, but also as, as writers, we all know when you're, you want to give, you want to tell the story in a way that's really engaging and enjoyable for the reader. So that was the other purpose for it. Thank you. Peter. Points of view. So I love the structure of this book. You have a couple of points of view, and then you divide a line, and you give us maybe a couple more points of view. And it really keeps the reader engaged. And Talk a little bit about how that developed. Is that something you always do, or is it specific to this book? And how does it serve where you're going? Well, I definitely often do it. Um, I have written a couple books where it's just like you're in, you're in one person's point of view the whole time. Horrible things are happening to them, and you're in, you're in their world. And that type of thriller can be really interesting. Um, but you know, books these days, thrillers. Um, this is a little publishing insider stuff, but they expect 80,000 word books. Um, I feel like in the old days, it used to be like shorter crime novels. Nowadays, it's 80,000 words. It's hard to tell a simple crime story in 80,000 words. We've all read books where that sag in the middle. Um, so it helps to have like multiple things going on. You can't just have one kind of good idea. Sometimes I think you need two good ideas for a book. Um, so I find one of them, one of the things to do is the is the multiple perspectives, and what you can do with that. Um, there's lots of things you can do with that. You can do unreliable narrators. Um, you can have people lie to the reader in the certain narrators. You can see events from two different sides, which is always fascinating. But um, for me, what I love about it is if you have multiple narrators telling one story. I always feel like there's, um, at heart, a fight among these narrators 
like who is this story really about? And I think if you can if you can start and maybe you don't know initially like who's who's the real like good person here or who's the really bad person and who's the survivor out of all of this because I actually think that's how we all go through life because we're all the lead in our own stories um, and we always think we're the lead so it's a way to think and I often have villains um, narrate portions of the book and I always think um, villains don't always know they're villains um, and they they think they're the lead um, so I just I love that um, tension you can get from having from seeing the same you know crime or story or situation um, through different types of mentalities Thank you. And Ria, you are not necessarily telling the same story from different points of view. You're telling two different stories from one woman's point of view. And how did you write that? Did you write all one storyline outcome and all the other storyline outcome? Or did you write it as we read it? Yeah, this is my first book that I've ever done, just one point of view, because I agree with Peter. I think it's so nice, like, not that it's filler material to have other people in there, but it's nice to fill out the book. So I was curious if I could even do that. But I actually wrote it exactly as it appears in this book, mainly because the chapters where Kate loses her daughter, I was so distraught that I was like, I need a unicorn rainbow and sunshine chapter to follow this. And because we're following her for one year, the book is broken up in seasons. So I wanted to make sure that I was mirroring certain, you know, times of the year that I, I made sure to kind of like drop little hints that we were really into parallel timelines. Um, so I did write it exactly as it appears in the book. I, I tend to do the same thing. And I think for exactly that reason, there is mirroring, there's picking up from a point, there's, um, it, it, it's very effective. Kathy. Uh, Deborah. So, yes, hello. Uh, so we really are in Tempe's point of view, and yet you very masterfully bring in the perspective of a lot of other characters through her. Um, for me, there was a major red herring where I thought you were going to slam us with uh, I don't know if I should say the, the thing about the hands. It's a particular hand being cut off. And I, I was looking in one direction, which very effectively was not the right direction. So um, how do you do that? Because I really liked getting to know all these people, some of whom live, some of whom don't. So will you talk a little bit about that? I don't know. Um, I just, <laughs> I was doing an event with Stephen King one time and someone asked him a very complex and deep question like that one, which is a good question. And he, I'll paraphrase here. He just said, I don't know, I just make stuff up. <laughs> you know, which is what I do. I just do it. I'm definitely not a plotter. I'm a pantser. Um, I make it up as I go along. I'm a very linear writer. Um, my daughter's a writer, and if she's in a good mood, she writes the love scene. If she's in a blue mood, she writes the death scene. I can't do that. I start with chapter one and do chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. You have just horrified me because I don't think in terms of words. 
but I happened to somehow do something and brought up the manuscript I'm working on, and it has, I thought I was two-thirds of the way through. 42,000 words. So you're saying I'm only halfway through. I, yeah. Again. Pretty much. Yeah. Subplot. Subplot, yeah. So may, maybe I need to bring in these other points of view. You're saying, let's talk. After, Again, did I answer your question? You did, you did. Uh, Vanessa, so you are creating this character, Sid Walker. I've read your first two books. Those are standalones. So how did you approach creating a character that you plan to return to? Yes, um, so I'm, I'm, I wrote as, a, as I like to read, which is I love a character who is very driven and maybe a little, they make some choices you don't agree with, but they're gonna keep you turning the page to see what happens to them after they do that. So I wanted Sid Walker to be number one driven by justice because, and it's not necessarily justice as defined by the legal system, it's sort of her own moral justice because what she does, because her sister is missing, and again, I thought if my, I have a brother, I thought if my brother was missing, yes, I would sneak onto a property that I suspected he was in. Yes, I would put myself into danger as my brother. And so she's the same, and she is willing to do risky things to see her sister um, brought home safely um, to her niece as well. She's a, her sister is a new mom. So for me, a pursuit of justice was number one. Um, and then for her as a character as well, you know, I wanted to, again, incorporate you know, being a white presenting but a Cherokee woman and what that identity me meant to me, and particularly to be in my own kind of point of view and share that and introduce parts of being Cherokee that are important to me are also kind of important to her. But she also is learning, and I think so much, you know, anybody's background, you know, our cultural heritage is a place we can learn about ourselves and our history. I mean, and it's been a gift to do more research, talk to family members. It's amazing what you can Google. If you look at, you know, just some family history of where you came from, like, what did your ancestors eat? What flowers would have grown in their yard? To me, that kind of connection and community is what I think I feel like I often am missing. And so I... Sid, in some ways, is a vehicle for me to do that work because I want to personally do it, and I bring a lot of that to her character um, because it's important to me as a writer. Thank you. Peter, let's talk noir. Okay. I'm a huge fan of film noir. Any noir fans in the room? So in film noir, we can safely say the woman is always up to something, right? She's, yeah, She's got something going. As I was getting through a lot of books, uh, I both read your books, which I have here, and uh, Rhea, yours has coffee all over from either a dog or a cat who knocked the cup over. Um, and I also do audio. I love doing both. I do not do audio in bed at night because five hours later I will have missed the book. But... Uh, your book, I was so in, in uh, channeling in my head, Philip Marlowe, and just loved the, the noir aspect. I mean, quite young. I think I was like 14 or 15, and I discovered these movies, and also the books. I mean, I was already reading mystery novels, um, and some contemporary stuff like the Spencer series, like Out of Boston and all that, which is noir-based. But I discovered the movies, and I love the, um, I mean, the tropes. So there's femme fatale, there's... Um, you know, the the smitten detective and all these sort of things. Um, I don't, you know, my agent refers to my books as being noir, and I, I don't think of them, 
I think my first one was sort of a weird take on noir where I, I transposed a typical noir story onto college, um, college kids in the 80s. And I, and I gave it sort of a noir name, which was the girl with a clock for a heart. Um, but, but yeah, so I think it's always on the back, back of my mind. I think we're all, we can all be pushed through money, sex, circumstance to, to do something bad. Um, that the world is against you and, um, and endings aren't happy. I mean, does that ring true? Absolutely. Yeah. And I wrote it in Florida, set it in Florida, and uh, spent a little time rewatching um, Body Heat, which is a Florida yes. noir, which really holds up if you haven't seen it lately. I now think Body Heat, like at the time, and I don't, I wasn't allowed to see it. I was too young. My parents went to see it, and I asked them all about it, and they were like, you can't see it. You're 10. <laughs> and... Um, and at the time, I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's just an 80s update of Double Indemnity and all that. But I now think it's like one of the great crime thrillers. It is, it is so tightly written. It's brilliant. The atmosphere, everything about it is perfect. I watch it like once a year. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. A lot of noir we associate with a certain period in the late 1940s, black and white films, but this is a, a later one. Um, I want to go now to... Uh, where am I here? Kathy, grab that mic. You have the extraordinary experience, and I, I, I say it's extraordinary because I really worked in this industry bringing books to film, and we talked last night about how rare it is for a book to actually be made into a film or a movie, and there's such a thing as development hell, and this can take decades. And you had the amazing experience of this series, 12 years. Please share with us how that was for you. Did they let you in the room? Often they don't like the novelist. How was all that? I loved it. I'm not one of these authors who will say, you took my work and you ruined it. I loved it. I loved the people we worked with. I was very involved in the series. I was a producer. I was also a writer. So I spent time in the writer's room, whether it was my episode or not, someone else. We, we had seven full-time staff writers, and each one would write a single episode. Um, so that, yeah, well, you can do the math. How many? We did 246 episodes. So it, I, I think the reason we lasted as long as we did, is because we had, well, Emily and David, for one thing, and the chemistry between Emily and David. And our writers were extraordinary. They were so good. We would sit in the writer's room, and we'd be starting to, what you call breaking, breaking the story. You know, we'd be starting to, th well, our opening scene was always a body found in some compromised and unpleasant situation. So we'd throw out, well, let's Let's put the body in a chocolate bar. You know. No, we did that in season three. Okay, let's put the body squashed in the bleachers in the high school gym. No, we did that in season six or whatever. So it became very, very difficult after that many episodes to come up with new and original and creative ideas, but our writers were fantastic. Our on-camera people could not have been nicer. Emily Deschanel is the most wonderful human being ever to grace the planet. Our support crew, I mean, it was just a perfect combination, and I think that, and everyone got along. We didn't have any divas or prima donnas. Da <laughs> David had his moments, but... 
And I think that's what, that's what made it a success. And something about the characters. We want it to, to be a character-based show, and um, we wanted our viewers to become engaged with these characters and care about these characters. And the other thing is, and the reason I went with the producers that I did, we were on the same page about wanting to put humor into the show. I put humor into my books, and that's a difficult, that's a real balancing act because every episode and every book deals with violent death. So how do you put humor in there? And I think we handled that, our writers handled that with a really delicate touch. Is that... Yes, that's a very good answer. I ramble, and, I ramble so long, I you. forget what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> what did she ask me? Rhea, let's talk about genre. You have written suspense, thriller. Uh, this book is not. I'm a great admirer of, uh, you know, I think of uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Chris Bajalian in a modern sense. There are people who who transit through through genres, who go in and out. I love that. How has that been in, in terms of getting published, getting people to allow you to do that? Well, I'm a rule breaker by nature. <laughs> I don't like rules. Um, but I actually got a book published when I was 22 that I don't even talk about. And uh, I don't even know what genre that was. I don't think anybody should write a book when they're 22. But I was so kind of disappointed with that experience. Um, it was fiction, but I just realized I didn't know much about the industry or what I was doing. So I actually turned away from fiction for 10 years. And I wrote nonfiction. I wrote books in the health and wellness space, got them traditionally published. But there was just something, I really missed fiction. So it wasn't until my what I consider my true debut, uh, which was a suspense novel called Not Her Daughter that came out in 2018, I wrote this book and ended up getting a four book deal, but I didn't know what genre, I wasn't trying to write a genre. And they told me, oh, you're a domestic suspense author and these are the books that you're going to write moving forward. I was like, okay. Um, so I did that for four books and then, um, actually decided to move on and try to find another publisher. So I was out of contract when I wrote this book and it had been years since I'd been able to just write a story for the joy of writing a story. I was a bit burned out at the time um, and just wasn't even sure if I wanted to publish another book for a while. And it was so fun actually getting to write a story. I wasn't super worried about the genre. I knew it wasn't gonna be suspense or thriller, but I was curious if if I could pull off the dual timeline thing, I knew a few other authors had done it. Um, and so I was thrilled when I did find a publisher who kind of put me in this, I guess, book club fiction um, genre, though I do have a thriller coming out in March, um, and then another one with this publisher coming out next August. So I'm kind of just playing the field. I'm not monogamous with genre. I love that. It's fun. It's fun. I love that. Megan. So I love the, the conceit of having the, the guy in the coma because it makes him both static, but it also makes him a bit of a ticking clock because he's an induced coma. So was that always in there? How did you approach that? Why? And did you know how effective it would be? I didn't know how effective it would be. I'm glad to hear that, though. Thank you. Um, no, I, from the beginning, I knew that since these two women were going to be um, battling both the police and um, kind of the public's opinion and 
battling each other ultimately over what happened, um, I knew I did not want him to have a voice in it. I didn't want him to be able to um, influence them in any way so that with him taken out of the equation, all that they're left with is what they can discover about him through things they didn't know he owned or things that other people tell them that maybe they would have never found out if he was awake and able to talk um, himself. And, um, and, and I wanted also so much about, of the book and of, of the two characters' journey is about their perception of this guy, of this man, um, and how that changes or doesn't change or needs to change, um, but they're stubborn about changing it. And so I wanted them to be the ones who are creating the picture of this guy without him actually being able to be there and doing dialogue and us seeing him on the page um, having these conversations. So. Um, that was really important to me that he did not get a voice for, well, I won't, I won't say if he ever gets a voice. You'd have to find out. But yet um, you, you didn't make him dead. I did not. It was not dead. definitive. And that, for me, was the ticking clock. Right. Is he going to wake and put a pin in one thing or another? Yeah, and I definitely wanted um, this idea of, okay, well, if, if he wakes up, well hopefully when he wakes up he's going to be arrested unless we do something to stop that. Um, and you know, like if, you're, if your loved one was just in a coma, like you don't want them to wake up and go to jail, like that's not fun. So um, they're really motivated from that as well um, and that it, it's kind of speeding them along in this process and it's making it all a lot more dramatic too, which is great for writing a suspense novel. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. I think we are at that magic moment of going to your questions, and I know you all have other questions than the ones I posed. So Lindsay is walking around with a microphone. Wait for the mic, because you're going to be on the radio. Thank you so much, all of you, for such interesting observations about writing. Um, my question is kind of a two-parter. One is, I'm curious about kind of the rattle and hum of the thriller or the suspense novel. Are you thinking about that even at the granular level of the word or is it more like the Dickensian cliffhanger chapters? Um, and the other question I have is Stephen King, I watched him one day, he talked about the good idea. So I know you, you're always asked, you know, where do you get your ideas? He talked about the good idea being one where he's able to make a, a connection between two disparate elements and work those, like in Thinner, where wouldn't it be great if you could eat anything you want and you never gain weight, but then you realize that the more you eat, the more weight you're losing. So it becomes a really bad thing. So I was wondering if there's a moment where things are floating around in your mind and you're like, oh, that's it. That's the good idea. Now I can begin. Who wants to answer that? 
Vanessa. I can just quickly answer about the idea thing, because I was just talking to Ray about this this morning. When I feel anxious and like viscerally hate something, I know that's the direction I need to go. <laughs> because it means I'm uncomfortable and there's a bigger question in it and I'm gonna have to go to a place that I don't want to go. If I feel happy and excited about it, it's a little too easy. So I like to really, I was just talking to her about an idea I have and I was like, I could feel it in my gut that I was like almost feeling nauseous because I was so nervous about going there. So that's what I look for. Anybody else want to comment, Megan? For me, um, I always know that an idea is probably going to go the distance if um, it's a premise I can't stop thinking about, like a what if question I can't stop thinking about. But also, there are plenty of those. I have plenty of those. But if I can pair it with something that resonates with something I've experienced or I've seen or I've felt, and it, the story can kind of become this huge metaphor for that thing, then I know that that story is likely I'm going to be able to carry that through the end and it's going to be a lot more impactful. Um, I'm happy to, to tackle the first question about writing um, because I'm not a trained uh, fiction writer. I you know, I was an attorney, um, so I wrote in that capacity. And I think what I have learned is that, um, that yes, there are, um, there's the story, there's the great idea, and then there's telling the story. And all of us read, we read a lot of manuscripts from first-time authors and, um, uh, and you know, are asked to give advice, and, and I actually teach a class occasionally about this. There are so many tools that I never knew existed, and the first novel I wrote was so, so bad. The story, I think, was good, but it was so bad, and I didn't know why, and a writing professor uh, read it and told me these basic things that I didn't even know I wasn't doing. The use of, of dialogue and narration, for example. So you have, like, in my mind, there's the plot, and so, yes, each chapter I try to and on a cliffhanger, I think most of us do that. We try to, we want that last paragraph to lead you into the next chapter so you don't put that book down. But there's so many ways to, to structure even a paragraph or a sentence. And the choices of using first person or third person, past tense or present tense, can drastically impact the feel of the read and your ability to have an unreliable narrator um, you know, all of these decisions we make, I don't know, I'll, I, and I find that that is the hardest part. I'll have the idea, and then how to tell the story is sometimes the most important thing um, because it'll, make, it'll change the reading experience. I have nothing to add to that question except where did you get your necklace? Because your necklace, your necklace is everything. <laughs> I don't even remember your question, so I was just blinded by that necklace. Consignment store, actually. It's gorgeous. Another question, comment? We have a ha hands over here. Kathy, you had mentioned um, using humor in your books. So I'm interested to hear from the rest of you if you feel that, if, do you use humor in your thriller and suspense books and kind of what do you think the role of humor is in a successful thriller or suspense novel? Uh, in in Reef, I love putting humor in. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, and I think all of his suspense films are very funny. And I got to write uh, one of my favorite bits of dialogue in this book when uh, two surfer boys at the very beginning discover a severed human hand on a beach, and the seagulls are hovering around it. And one brother says to the other, dude, do you think it's real? And the other brother says, the seagulls do. I thought that was very funny. 
Yeah, I love, again, this isn't a thriller, but I think humor and dialogue is so important, especially if you're going through grief, and we all handle that so differently, but having those moments in there, as, as a writer, I think no matter what genre you're writing, it's so fun to kind of incorporate that and, and give, the, give the reader almost a little reprieve, whether it's with suspense or, or something sad. I love, I, humor is very important to me too. I think it helps the reader take a breath. I mean, my favorite, I mean, I love my main character, Sid, but her cousin, Raina, is an ex-stripper who works at a casino and stuffs her bustier and knows how to get into all trouble. And that's fun. I like, I like someone who can help the main character who is focused on so many things to get that plot going, kind of poke at him a little bit, let you see other sides to them. And humor is such a fun way to do that. Also, Okies are really funny. So. <laughs> I think the most frequently quoted line in any of my books is I describe flies buzzing around a corpse like academics at a free buffet. That's funny. My academic colleagues weren't all that amused. <laughs> I was just at my college this, this weekend, and she's right. <laughs> I can honestly say there is absolutely no humor in any of my books. And I don't know why, because I think I'm a funny person. I'm just thinking that. I was trying to think of one funny thing in any of my books. And there's not, sorry. So, so um, my question has to do with, so I have a degree in criminal justice, so I'm very fascinated by crime and murder and this whole part of the human psyche that, that does this, right? But I'm also like this very happy-go-lucky lighthearted, like nobody would know that I have this fascination with um, the human psyche and, and why we're so interested in, uh, well, they, they, I'm not saying anyone in this room is a murderer, but I'm just saying that, <laughs> like, most of us who are not murderers are fascinated, right, by this concept. And so I'm, I'm interested in, in, like, everybody, how you sort of navigate that part of your mind, it's like, okay, I'm gonna write about somebody just getting stabbed and like, you know, blood like oozing and just all these things that are very intense, but then you have to go be like, okay, what do you want for dinner, honey? And, and, and like have an, a, a normal existence, right? So how do you do that divide between like, I'm gonna write about things that are unspeakable and now I'm gonna go like sit with my grandchildren and like, talk about, you know, Winnie the Pooh or something. So. Um, well, I think that, I mean, just to use those two examples, like, I think that writing about the murder allows us to go talk to the people about Winnie the Pooh. It's like um, putting all, like, we all, everybody here, whether you present as a bubbly, cheerful person or not, has a mix of dark and light in you. And um, darkness just happens to be a part of our careers. Um, and so we put that on the page so that when we leave that, we can be these bright, happy selves and, and all of that. Um, and I think it's a way to explore all the things that some people like don't in their everyday lives have the opportunity to really sit and dwell on and think about. Um, and so it can be kind of like you get into a little dark space, but then, I don't know, for me at least, I'm, I'm pretty good at just like, Ugh, I finished my words for the day, like, that's done, like, I'm gonna go, like, think about cupcakes. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's all a good old-fashioned compartmentalization. Um, and I think it's fun, I, 
you know, in some ways I've been doing it my whole life because I'm, I'm such an avid, like, dark fiction reader and have been since I was um, probably too young to be reading dark fiction. And um, so, yeah, so it's just like you're reading, <laughs> you're reading this dark story and then you put the book down and you go do something else. And it's just, it's, it's the same with writing. I mean, and, and the other thing that I think is, you know, the, the, wor the worst feeling you have as a writer is when you're, you can't write or you're not getting it right or you're not doing it well or you're staring at a blank page. Um, so the, if, if you just write, write, wrote the most horrible scene, but if you wrote it well, like you're gonna feel really good. Um, <laughs> Because that's, I mean, it's like the romantic poet who's writing about the loss of their, like, love. If what, you know as soon as they get that poem down there, like, yes, I did it. Like, I'm going to make people cry. So I do think, um, I do think, yeah, there's, um, you know, I get thrilled by, by writing what I, you know, I, I always go back and read it, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't very good. But, um, but at the time, to, to have that sense that you're writing something good is exciting. There's something in writing where you have control. Uh, having started as an actress, and when I was on All My Children, and being on a soap opera, because I've done that, I've done nighttime television, I've done feature films. On a soap opera, you're playing the same character every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. And my character got increasingly more troubled and more devious and diabolical. And I was very young. I was right out of college. That was a time for me that it was harder to differentiate. Um, soap opera fans are a particular animal. They take you very seriously as the character. It's very different from doing other types of acting. I would get letters. I got a letter from a woman explaining to me that her two daughters had the same sorts of issues that I had with my sister Erica. And she <laughs> gave me um, advice, psychological advice. <laughs> so that was the only time, even later acting films and nighttime TV, it wasn't as hard to disentangle. But we have control as a writer. We are choosing what we're writing to, to some degree. I mean, it does kind of go get away from you and take a life of its own. But that, I just felt an onslaught of these nightly scripts, 90 pages of dialogue of like, what? Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Authors Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Authors Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories.